I'm Corinne Schaefer, and welcome to Create Outside the Box. In this episode, I will be speaking with trombonist Pete Maurer about jazz, his life on tour, and what helps him to stay grounded. If you're interested in watching our conversation, please visit our Creative Operations YouTube channel under the playlist, Create Outside the Box. Trombonist Pete Maurer has been a 15-year member of the traveling R&B show band, The Sensational Soul Cruisers, performing in theaters and concert venues throughout the Eastern U.S. He has toured internationally with Stax record artists Sam and Dave, Carla Thomas, Eddie Floyd, and Wilson Pickett. He contracted players and performed at the 1989 presidential inaugural concert, Celebration for Young Americans, during which President Bush donned an electric guitar and played with Sam Moore in the band. Pete toured with jazz great Charles Erland, for whom he auditioned at Asbury Park's Orchid Lounge. Locally in Monmouth County, he played and recorded with La Bamba and the Hubcaps, Cold Blast and Steel, Bachi and the Bad Boys, Billy Hector Band, Eddie Testa, Boulevard East, Steel Mill Retro, Billy Walton Band, and Bon Jovi. He also played in the PNC Art Center House Orchestra. The Jazz Lobster's Big Band was a Monday night mainstay, a source of inspiration and an opportunity to play great music with fine players. Pete's big band days began when he joined Livingston College Jazz Ensemble, conducted by Frank Foster. Symphony experience was with the Plainfield Symphony, conducted by Jose Sorebrier. Hello, Pete, and welcome to Create Outside the Box. Hello, Corinne. Nice to see you. You're looking beautiful today. Well, so are you. You look very handsome. I'm loving all of the instruments in the background. Uh, I normally take the beginning of the podcast if I know the guest uh, to explain how we know each other. And we've actually known each other for a while because I used to go dancing with my dance teacher, Tom Stanton, and his wife, Melissa, at The Key, which is where I met you at the Jazz Lobsters and your beautiful wife, Pam. And it's been a while, but when I moved back to the States, we reconnected. And then uh, I wanted to work with you and I wanted to connect with you and collaborate. So then I roped you into Feed the Soul in November. And that was just wonderful having the opportunity to perform with you and collaborate on that project. So then I wanted to grab you and get you on the podcast and have other people learn about how fantastic you are. Thank you uh, for your fine, fine words and compliments. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> and it was a pleasure working with you. And I never worked with two singers with such uh, strong voices before. Yeah. And, that's and feed the soul. Yeah. Because that concert, I wanted it to be, I mean, it was a community performance initiative, uh, free concert with a free meal for those in need. And I wanted it to be a mix of all different genres. So we were kind of collaborating with classical and jazz and musical theater. So I think we all learned uh, from each other on that. And it was great because the audience, I think, really enjoyed that mix mix as well. I want to kind of learn more about you. And I know that this is like kind of like ooh, not your favorite thing because you were saying you're used to being the side man. And I'm kind of making you take center stage a little bit. Um, but it's through being such a great side man and such a team player that you're you've had this great career performing with all of these different ensembles. So I want to get back to like, what was your first introduction to music? How did you get into music? And what made you pick the trombone? The trombone picked me. Really? Yeah, I I uh, was in fourth grade and I had transferred in from a parochial school and my family uh, learned that music lessons were available and free in the public school and they and they weren't in parochial school. So they said, OK, uh, you're, you're going to take you're going to take lessons. And my grandfather, who came over here from uh, Italy in 1909, had been over in Italy. He played bassoon, but we never knew that side of him here because he was always too busy uh, working to to support his family. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, 
grandpa decided that everybody, all my mom's children would get, he would buy instruments for them because it was silly to rent them. Yeah. <laughs> he would just buy, they, they should have their own. So I was in uh, that the, the after school meeting uh, to find out about music lessons. There were a bunch of kids there and they handed me this case and said, here, you're going to play trombone. And I was a quiet, shy kid. Uh, and I didn't object, even though it was heavy, but I guess <laughs> I had to have somebody carry it. And, and uh, I didn't know the... I didn't know from the glamour instruments like trumpet or flute, the ones that were easy to carry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so they handed me a trombone and I was a good boy and I took it home. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And was that your first introduction to music or, you know, if you had your grandfather, even though he was working, obviously music was part of the family. Were you listening to music at home? Like what was the first music that you were listening to? Mom and dad uh, used to play have the radio on quite a bit. And there was a show uh, by the, the host was William B. Williams and it was called make believe ballroom. Oh, cool. And they did all this. They did all the great standards, big band standards and the great vocalists uh, from forties, uh, fifties, uh, I guess by that time they, they were, they were oldies mm -hmm. because uh, uh, that's, that's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of music my, my uh, parents listened to when they were courting uh, uh, was they were uh, they met around the time of World War Two and the Glenn Miller band was big. That was one of my dad's favorites. Uh, Tommy Dorsey, uh, uh, those guys. So those those kinds of things were in the background on the radio. Another influence was uh, uh Louis Armstrong. I love listening to Louis Armstrong. You'd see him on TV and you'd hear him on the radio. And for some reason, that genre just clicked with me. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I loved it. It made me feel happy. Yeah. Now, your parents were, you know, listening to, to music. They had music on all the time. I know that your mom uh, was a painter. Uh, am I right in assuming between grandpa getting the instruments for everybody and your mom being a painter that the arts were supported in your household? Yes. Yeah. Arts were supported uh, uh, most definitely. They they really wanted uh, my parents really wanted us to follow more academic professional careers. Uh, so it wasn't stressed as a an option growing up. OK, uh, you're going to be a uh, you, your career is going to be a trombonist or uh an artist and it wasn't a passion wasn't developed that way it was more a passion to uh go to school and learn and learn whatever you can i would have to say though uh what the question of supporting the arts my grandparents used to go and go to the met every and they had they went several times a season but i think that was something privately that they shared that was kind of their special time together so we never we never went with them they because they only had two tickets, yeah, and they so they loved the uh, Italian operas. So that was their date night, so to speak. <laughs> that was their date night, yeah. So, so there was a love of music in the family. I would have to say. Now, besides Louis Armstrong, were there other musicians that you grew up listening to that really inspired you, especially as you got more serious about playing? I. Loved listening to uh, uh, Henry Mancini's music mm -hmm. and uh, and the great film composers uh, that I I'm still I'm still coming to appreciate some of them that I don't know enough about. Henry Mancini, uh, Peter Rigolo did a lot of the uh, TV series shows for uh, 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 I think QM Productions was one of them. Uh, did a, he did a, a bunch. The Fugitive was one of my favorite TV soundtracks. The original Fugitive with uh, David Jansen because it it was themed and there were just there was so much work that he put out with that theme and and different instrumentation that it never ceases to fascinate me. Yeah, there were a lot of shows. Like I mean all throughout your your childhood i'm thinking back that just had these like amazing very short theme songs that were so catchy you know even when you're watching commercials like the jingles there was this art of 
the jingle, the art of the movie soundtrack, the the TV theme song, you know, there was a lot of thought and care put into those, those little jingles and those soundtracks, um, much more so than I think they do today. You think of the artists that were writing for film also, you know, talking about World War II and post-World post War II, because you had so many great composers come over to Europe who were writing for Hollywood. So there's a lot to be gained uh, from those film soundtracks. I, I love film composers as well. I'm, I'm right with you with all that. One of the film composers I love is uh, Bronislaw Caper, and he he wrote one of the tunes we performed, uh, uh, "Invitation." Uh, he he wrote that tune, and that was that was for a movie as well. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, that was. And uh, excuse me, I don't remember the uh, which it was for now. Yeah. We'll have to look that one up, yeah. but that, that gets people curious because I didn't know that was from a movie. So that's really, really cool. So at some point, you know, your parents wanted, OK, you can, you know, play the trombone, but, you know, we want to have you get like a normal job. At what point did you decide, all right, I'm going to go into music and study music in school? I did not study music in, in school. Intermediate school, they wanted me to play in the high school marching band. So I did four years of that, uh, four years of marching band. And the, the the band leader was a Marine drill sergeant who uh, inculcated, uh, uh, besides marching properly, to have pride in what you do and be better than the rest. Uh, that was the lesson learned from marching band. By uh, junior year, I they transferred me to a parochial school mm-hmm. and they had no music program. So I stopped playing. Wow. And then I, I uh, went to Rutgers as a pre-med student uh, to begin, begin. I began Rutgers as a pre-med. And then once I got a, the, uh, the taste of all the academic things you can uh, explore, I, I was all over the place. I, you know, I, I studied this and I studied that. I at the time their music program was the Rutgers Marching 100, which was another marching band. I decided I didn't want to ever do a marching band again. <laughs> so I didn't play for for quite a while, just casually, you know, but not uh, nothing nothing serious. And then I was I found out about this production after this is after I graduated. I lived in New Brunswick. There was a production of Cabaret at Douglas College. And I, and I lived, uh, my, my apartment was right around the corner from there. So I, I said, um, they had a sign. They, there was, I saw a sign or a poster that they needed musicians. So I said, oh, that's interesting. Let me go check it out. So I checked it out. It got a, a you know, basically a pit job. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a local local production, and I was I love the music. I just love the music, and I love that show. And yeah. I, because uh, maybe because I was uh, playing the playing the music, and and it was really that was a thrill. Okay, so then you can kind of clarify. I know from you know my experience, you know, going to school is that if you were a jazz major that you had to study all the classical technique and the jazz, the jazz theory and the classical theory. And I just wanted you to explain a little bit the differences between, you know, the classical technique and the classical way of performing and the jazz um, theory and the jazz technique of performing. And also what the benefits would be, you know, for students who want to become jazz musicians, what is the benefit of having classical technique and the ability to do both? What you learn uh, studying classical music and and my early music lessons were mostly uh, classical etudes. Uh, and I, I didn't really connect it. When I started connecting with during my music lessons with a music that I liked, it was my my music teacher at the time, he was a trumpet player, but he taught brass. Mm-hmm. And he got he he turned me on to this swing etude book. And that was the most fun for me to play. But to, to answer the question, uh, it, no matter what you're playing, you have to articulate uh, 
articulate the notes perfectly. You have to, your intonation has to be on the money. And so there's the, their prevailing principles, I believe, in all music. If you don't have that in mind, uh, you run the risk of being sloppy and, and, you know, maybe the word amateurish. Mm -hmm. Would that apply? I don't know. So you need it as a foundation. You know, you can't just all of a sudden start improvising. You have to be able to do something, you know, uh, from the bottom and build on it. So you have, you played all those classical etudes. Maybe you weren't connecting with it, but from that, you, it was easier to jump to the swing and be able to articulate and have that intonation, but then also let loose. Right. The, well, the foundation is, uh, it, you know, is the foundation is 13 notes of the scale uh, 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 and the various scales and the combinations of those. And that for me has been a lifelong study. I never, never sat down at one point in my life or like say a semester where if you were going to a, a, a music university uh, as a music major, you would sit down and learn all the modes Mm-hmm. And all the all the scales all in one or two semesters, and have it memorized. It was wasn't that kind. Of, it didn't go that way for me. Mine's been acquired over over uh, the years, and I'm still learning. Yeah, on the job training. And by the way, we're always learning. You know, it's never never finished. I always felt, you know, because obviously I was going the classical route. Then I would have some of these jazz majors in my theory classes, and. It was funny. They had to learn about our world, but we didn't have to learn about their world. And I feel like we kind of lost out a little bit because I know, you know, when you get to jazz, there's even more scales and other ways of dealing with things. And, you know, you deal with lead sheets like you can read a lead sheet or you can read, you know, written out music. Me, a lead sheet, I'm just kind of like I know it's a key, but I wouldn't know what to do with it. So I think there are benefits to having, you know, classical musicians learn more about you know jazz and that flexibility and freedom yes yeah yes the i think that when you say uh like you hand somebody hands you a lead sheet you wouldn't know what to do with it i think that you would i i i think a lead a lead sheet is a, a simple is a really a simplification of the the entire process and you you know somebody that's trained you know obviously can read the melody off the lead sheet if you you're reading music yes you're not playing a chord instrument so there maybe the chord symbols are meaningless but they're not meaningless to everyone or if if someone sees a chord symbol then they're going to know what scale or what what group of notes to go with when they improvise so that's that's the advantage of just having a a, a sheet with uh, the melody and the chords on it. Now, if you're in a big ensemble and you have lead sheets, it's kind of like how much of it is structure and how much of it is improvisation? All right. Uh, we'll give you an example. Let's say the big band format is usually 16 pieces, right? It's usually uh, uh, three tenor trombones and a bass trombone, uh, uh, uh Four trumpets, five saxes, uh, uh, drummer, uh, keyboard. Uh, sometimes a guitar is added in there, and a vocalist. Mm-hmm. Those are strictly arranged. They're very structured. Each part, okay. each part is arranged. And you, you, if you're doing a, a, a big band jazz gig, your solo time is 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 marked on the chart when to when to come in and do your solo. So, and then, you know, and we do, we call them charts. So to the answer your question is, it's very structured. Each, each uh, section uh, is, is, is featured. Uh, You're expected to play within the structure when you're not soloing. Mm -hmm. So it's very much like classical, being in a classical orchestra, you play your part. If uh, a solo comes up in your part, you take it. Mm-hmm. And and you're expected to know what to do. Yeah. You know, it it made me think of so like as an opera singer, there are certain areas where we have cadenzas. So we'll have like, say, 
four measures of cadenza. Now that means we can kind of play around. There's normally like nothing underneath us at that point, but we can play around and, and improvise and do something different. Now, of course, in opera, there are some famous cadenzas that people expect to hear with certain pieces, but that's kind of similar to me to when you have a jazz solo and you have four measures that you know you're you're playing my funny valentine and you get to do basically like a jazz cadenza over everybody else of of what your instrument's going to add to to that particular song correct right right yeah so we uh and i i am familiar with cadenzas i used to see them and and you know when i had to uh learn classical pieces for my my various lessons or uh auditions uh I, you know i so the cadenza is very much like an improv but to me it's a little more structured because the composer wants uh uh it, it seems to be he wants those note patterns and your your flexibility is with dynamics uh time uh i but i've always thought of a cadenza as a structured solo as as opposed to a pure improvisation but now you're telling me as an opera singer that you're you have liberty to interpret can you can you interpret them any way you want I think you're right there's more there's more imposed structure on what you're doing because as I said in certain areas you have cadenzas and you have like your choice between this cadenza this cadenza or this cadenza and people are expecting a certain thing. So if you do something very different, they might not be happy because they're expecting it to be in this range. Um, but I've also seen people do make up their own cadenzas. But you're right. It, it's it's not like all of a sudden you're going to go drastically out of time and you're going to, you know, or change keys or really go out of the framework. Classical music still has, I think, a very firm framework that you have to to stay in that's probably not as free as a jazz solo so i think you're right with that yeah now if it's if it's not a big band and if the if the music isn't written out and charted out for each instrument if it's just to say a jazz combo then there's complete freedom wow. uh almost it depends on the players you're you're working with a keyboard player is going to have a multitude of uh chord inversions they'll play and a, a really fine jazz soloist is going to play off and hear those hear those inversions and play off of them. Yeah, um, we don't have that in classical music. We can't. It, it's kind of like here's the structure. Here's your time to do this, but still within the structure. And then we go right back to the structure. And what you're talking about there doesn't exist in opera where one person riffs and then you're riffing off of what they did and you can build something. Um, and I always love that in, in jazz. I also love when you can tell they're playing off of each other and then there's a bunch of inside jokes. Maybe they'll quote another jazz song within the jazz song, you know, so it becomes kind of like a competition, you know, who can be uh, the smartest with their little solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it could go that way. Yeah, there's there's some there's some players that are like that. I think it's just better to uh, focus on making beautiful music rather than rather than demonstrating your own technical expertise uh, uh that's uh, to me that's not what it's about to me it's about making making the people that are helping the people that are playing with you sound great and and and, and having a great overall overall production to the public mm -hmm. or even if it's not to the public uh, even if it's a just a private rehearsal some kind of rapport, uh, musical rapport, where you're communicating musically and non-verbally. Now, through all of this, we've been kind of talking about, you know, been talking about classical versus, you know, jazz. There's a little bit more flexibility in in jazz, but I think flexibility in general, personally, I think that all musicians should have some flexibility because, as you're saying, it's about making the music. It's about creating an experience, whether that's with your ensemble or for the audience. Um, why is flexibility so important for musicians? You don't know what when you go into a situation, you you don't know what's going to happen until it, it happens. And you 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 have to be to me, you have to be ready for 
for anything. Uh, when you say flexibility, are you talking about uh, uh, adapting to different styles or to different people? Or, or there's there's a couple different ways to look at it. No, and you're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought that up because it is. It's the flexibility to to different styles, but also, as you said, the flexibility of when you are performing live, you don't you don't know what's going to happen. So you also have to be flexible that if someone zigs when they should zag, that that doesn't throw you off. Right. That's called thinking on your feet, and we all have to do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that and that that just comes with uh, with working a lot and you know knowing that uh knowing that there's beauty and imperfection and how can you take that imperfection and turn it around into something that's cool speaking of like flexibility with the different genres you perform in many different genres rock r&b jazz classical is there a favorite that you love performing in and then my second follow-up to that would be, which one is the most challenging? My favorite is what is uh, R&B right now because I'm I'm doing it and I'm immersed in it. So that's that's the that's the flavor of the flavor of the year, so to speak, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm working a lot in it and it's pretty cool. The most challenging for me was classical. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I'll give you a for instance. When you know, when I was in you know in intermediate school and high school, I used to audition for all county, all state, and I used to go into the audition hall, and everybody'd be warming up on their on their instruments in the, in the hallways or in the different practice rooms. There'd be a lot going on, and you're hearing people that could play way better than you you can ever hope to play at an early age and it just it was so intimidating and it just but it just forced me to okay you're here you're going to do the best you can and yeah i'm i made some of them some of them i didn't mm-hmm. some of the some of the uh you know i've made all state i made all county and you know but not every year mm-hmm. so i kind of knew where i stood in that uh, in that genre but it's it's funny that you bring up that like you came in and you heard these other people and like, I mean, we all do it. You go, you know, whether it's a gig or an audition, you hear other people and you get, you know, nervous or you get insecure. And I had a similar experience where I was going to a competition and I was waiting to go in for, for my turn. And the girl right before me was singing one of the arias that I was going to sing. It was basically what I was going to open with. And I went, oh, geez, I'm going to, I'm going to have to follow this with the same exact aria because that was my plan. Yeah, I'm out of it. Like you start, you know, putting yourself down. And the funny thing was, is I ended up winning second place. So, you know, and, and the, the girl didn't even, the girl before me didn't place. So we sometimes, you know, yes, you know, it's natural to want to compare, but you still got into, you know, all state, you still got into some of these ensembles, even though you got nervous. Like I still did well, even though uh, the girl sang the same aria right before I was going to sing it. So sometimes we have to be careful not to like take ourselves out of the running before we even, you know, get in the race. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, 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 it gives you the uh, perspective. You got to let it happen. You, know? <laughs> you just, you're there, you let it happen. We've been talking about, so you've been doing a lot of R&B lately with your band. You have a ton of experience playing with a lot of different bands in the area. Um, And you've performed with some like really big names, including John Bon Jovi. Do you have any fun stories that you want to share about that? He was uh, toward the end of his Slippery When Wet tour, and he decided to add a horn section. And I just happened to be playing with, uh, in, in a yeah, you know, in a cover band, I was playing with two two guys that played with him in the old days when he had uh, when he had his his bar band called Atlantic City Expressway, and uh, so they called you know they said oh well we can we can do this uh, we can do this rehearsal and then this show and then it turns out we got called for uh, several arena shows uh, 
So on the end of that tour, and it was real interesting. I never imagined myself playing in Madison Square Garden or or, or the Spectrum or, or uh, you know some of the really big uh, concert venues. So it, that was uh, uh, if you if you I got butterflies, and if you didn't get butterflies from from that, you were you're not human. You know, it's it's like just a massive amount of people. Um, That's crazy. I can't even imagine like Madison Square Garden. I mean, how many artists want to perform at Madison Square Garden? But when you're up there on stage, like seriously, does it just look like a never ending audience of people? Yep. Yep. It's uh, yep. It goes on and on. And and then but then you remember you're a sideman. They're looking at they're looking at the star of the show. So it's something you don't worry about it too much after once the initial shock wears off. Well, yes and no, but I, I, I love that you, you always refer to yourself as, as a sideman, but I, I think it's because you put the music first, you know, you, like you were saying before, it's not about showing off. It's about making sure that everyone has an experience and a positive experience and that you are bringing the music to to life. And so I, I don't think it makes your role less important or less, um, looked upon because there are some people that at some point in that audience are going to see you playing the trombone, but your focus is in the right place. It's not about attention. It's about, again, making beautiful music and having people have a great time. Uh, that's true. At, at, at early on, I, I was on the road with, uh, uh, I, I auditioned, I, I auditioned and got a gig with uh, Sam and Dave. Sam and Dave, uh, you know, you may know some of their hits. Uh, they were a Stax, uh, a Stax group from the uh, from the '60s, and had some major major uh, R&B hits. And they made a resurgence around the time the Blues Brothers movie came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that music, all that music, started coming back in full circle. So they were putting together a band again. So I was on the road with them, and very early on, the musical director said. Don't mess with the stars. <laughs> it, 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 not quite in those, in not quite in that language, but yeah. don't mess with the stars. And it's about it's about them. It's not about you. And you know, yeah, for a young guy with hubris that thinks they're gonna dance into the situation and and be a star themselves, that was a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs everybody needs a good lesson every now and then. Well, that's true. So speaking about like touring and, you know, playing these great venues, you are often on tour, like planes, trains and automobiles, like, and it's a hectic schedule. When you're away from home for so long, like, how do you keep grounded in a tour schedule? You just set up mental parameters for yourself that you're going to, you're going to read, you're going to spend a certain amount of time reading, you're going to spend a certain amount of time uh, getting out, exercising, or seeing something that you've never seen before—some uh, kind of relaxation outside of the work that you're doing, which which is important. For instance, uh, you get on a ferry and take a ride. They take a ride, and and the fact that the ferry leaves and you have no control over it, and you're on the water and it's a beautiful day—that that that really relaxes you, puts your mind at ease. Mm-hmm. That's 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 one one thing to do. Some people pray. Uh, some people call home all the time. Uh, I've you know I've, I've seen quite a few different people on the road react to that dilemma. Uh, if you get uh, if you get homesick, the the easiest cure is to go find some comfort comfort food that mom used to make. Yep, and that that reminds you of. Uh, remind you of who you are mm-hmm. exactly no that's smart I, I I'm not a big like McDonald's person but if I were well, homesick and in Europe I would go and get like you know something at McDonald's because it just all of a sudden made you feel like you were back you know in the in the states and it only took one meal and then I was you know back but it's always funny because I would only get McDonald's when I was out of the US. I would never really get McDonald's when I'm here. So, but it made me think of home. Speaking of like cool experiences that you've had, 
you performed at the 1989 inaugural concert for President Bush. That must have been pretty cool. Can you tell us about that experience? It was a, a wonderful experience, actually. I was I got a call from uh, uh, Sam Moore's manager, uh, Joyce McRae, and she says, "We're uh, Sam is going to work the audition. Uh, can you are you available? And can you find some horn players? Can you uh, uh, for the show? We need uh, six horns. Uh, so basically, I helped with." I helped with the backup band and uh, the musical director was uh, of, of the backup band. And it, this was for this, this concert was called celebration for young Americans. Okay. And it was basically R and B stars uh, uh, and blues, blues stars of the day performing at this venue outside of the main inaugural concert that the, uh, which was uh, that was that was Frank Sinatra and a number of other you know heavy duty people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the pop version, the pop thing, and it was in Constitution Hall. We got tickets to fly into town early and and paid to rehearse, which was really neat. Uh, you don't always get that uh, with some some shows. And the musical director and name was Billy Preston. In actuality, it was uh, uh, a local guy, a friend of friend of ours called uh, named George Naha. He was he really ran he ran the band and did the cutoffs and and everything like that. And then he queued off a of Billy Preston when necessary, but George was pretty much in charge. And he had done that job for Sam, uh, Sam and Dave over the years, so he knew what he knew what he was doing. So we we got to perform with Sam. Uh, uh, Joe Cocker, uh, Dr. John, all on the same show, Billy Preston. And an interesting thing, it, during, th during the show, the president, the president-elect came up uh, on stage and played guitar. But, and, and so did uh, Lee Atwater, who was the uh, uh, Republican chairman, not, uh, chairman of the Republican National Committee at the time and uh he uh they played but the that part of the show didn't make the video the video yeah. was the video was hidden for about 20 years and and it was a very well produced video it's it's uh you know it's on dvd but that uh they didn't authorize that to be part of the uh the documented history of the event oh, that's a shame uh, yeah, it is. It was it was a shame. It the picture of them playing did make the the uh, front page of the New York Times and most of the you know newspapers in the world, but uh, but for some reason it was uh, it was edited out, so to speak. Yeah, and I I don't know I don't know that anything about why, but you know it is what it is. Well, since we can't we were, we can't see it because it's been edited out. How how did they play? Were they any good? <laughs> oh, it was it was just a it was just a goofy thing. Oh, and, a goofy uh, thing. Yeah, <laughs> it was just, they were they were clowning around. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the president was making faces, and everybody was making faces at each other. It was kind of fun. It was fun, funny to watch, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but no, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like uh, they queued up his guitar just to hear him. It was kind of like a. Uh, up, 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 a playtime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having fun with the band. So, besides the, you know, playing Madison Square Garden, you know, Bon Jovi, this the concert with with President Bush. Do you have any other uh, career highlights that you'd like to share? That's a excellent question. We were able to, to travel uh, Europe with. Uh, uh, they 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 put a soul tour together of the uh, Memphis soul artists. It was uh, Sam and uh, Sam, and at that time uh, there was a a guy they hired to sing Dave's parts. Uh, and then it was Carla Thomas, it was uh, Wilson Pickett, and Eddie Floyd. All of them were had star had hits, and they were stars in their own right at various times. You know. You know throughout 
from the 60s on. We had a European tour uh, all by all by flights, uh, all by air uh, from various cities. So first, the first tour, first stop on the tour was uh, uh, Umea, Sweden. Wow. And I couldn't believe the uh, amount of snow on the ground because this was in this was in March. They landed at the airport and there was like six feet of snow. And, they, and then we heard it was like, oh, it's only 100 miles from the Arctic Circle or whatever, whatever. I don't know if that's true or not. So there to Helsinki, uh, to Austria, to Italy, uh, to Sardinia, uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, France, and then, uh, then, then home. But all by flight uh, and... The amount of people that that uh, came to the shows and just adored that kind of music was uh, was uh, just amazing to me. Uh, I didn't know our our music was that popular overseas, and boy, we we had a warm welcome. And wow. then various people, volunteers, you know, you know, they 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 chauffeured us around. Uh, to, to drove us from the hotel to the venue and pretty much anywhere we wanted to go. Uh, they made sure we were fed. It was a very uh, enlightening trip. And and, and uh, yeah, I may, not, may never have gotten to see the Sistine Chapel if I didn't go on that trip. That sounds amazing. I mean, getting yeah. to, you know, perform music that you love to audiences that are appreciative and then also to see so many different countries and cultures and that's wow that's really amazing when was that 1982 okay 1982 uh so uh another highlight was i i was in the uh for one season i was in the pit at uh the at the time it was called garden state art center now it's known as the pnc and there are fantastic players in in, in that in that group and i was uh i was just a newbie coming in uh sight reading uh and just trying to do a good job but one of the thrills was working with uh uh gladys knight oh uh, yeah wow gladys, gladys knight and the pips uh were on one of the shows and that was cool steve lawrence uh and Edie gourmet that was another real cool show they were really nice nice to us really really nice people Oh, that's great. So uh, the interesting part about uh, uh, about a venue like that, you, you had to be you have to be in the union. Mm -hmm. OK, and it was 10 minutes from home. That was that was really good. <laughs> um, and. You were expected to. If you know, if you were expected to maybe help you know, some of the other guys get work, but I was doing the kind of stuff that nobody wanted, nobody in uh, that caliber wanted to do. There were I was doing uh, like on the road with Sam and Dave. Nobody wanted to do that uh, because it's uh, it, it was a low, a low budget thing. You know, it wasn't really nice, it, it, and it's not Broadway. If you if you uh, could. If you can throw a Broadway gig to one of those guys, you can keep working. And I was doing the rock and roll. I was doing a Doors cover van at the time. I was doing a, yeah, I had my irons in a lot of different fires and they were fires. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wanted to, uh, you know, you couldn't get a legit guy that, a, a guy that doubles on five woodwind, different, five different woodwind instruments. He's not going to want to come out to a, uh, to a Doors cover show uh, for probably around the same money you, he would be making, but he'd get his head blown off with volume. And, you know, you know, why do that when you could stay here and do this? You know, so it was, it was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And a lot of the conversations that we've had, like in the, in the podcast with the different artists, one of the common themes is that artists don't just stay in their discipline. You know, they like to explore and try different things. Besides music, is there another genre of art that you like to express yourself in? I'm not expressing myself in it right now, but someday uh, I will 
I will do uh, uh, some type of painting uh, or sculpture. Is that uh, sculpture really interests me? And actually, masonry interests me very much too. Build, you know, to to see to build things out of stone. That's, but I'm not I'm not a practitioner at this point. Um, You're too busy working as a working musician. <laughs> yeah, and even at my age, I'm still all over the place. I like. I like to take something apart and see if I can fix it. Uh, I like to see how things work. I'm, you know, inquisitive that way. And uh, yeah. there's so many. I have I have so many interests. I don't know where to <laughs> where to go next. No, but that's great because you're you're open and you're curious. Um, I mean, I know that you're also a really big gardener, you know, and that you know that is an interest. And I was also wondering if you know, getting your hands dirty in the dirt and then, you know, planting all the seeds and seeing things grow, if that's another thing that it's kind of the calm and the storm of like all of your touring and everything, you come home and you have your garden, then you have your vegetables and, you know, something that you created. You know, actually, yes. Uh, I, it's great that you said that because uh, that's definitely been happening. And it, it's also forced me because I, I have a busy schedule playing wise, it's forced me to figure out how I'm going to do a, a bigger garden with l less work. Uh, mm -hmm. Like for instance, automated irrigation, uh, uh, weed control, that kind of thing. And, and do it in a way that's not detrimental to the environment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, that's, that's a challenge. And, and so, yeah, I, I do that. <laughs> Yeah. And there's creativity in that. I mean, you know, in another conversation with Hank, who we both worked uh, with in Feed the Soul, he actually started off wanting to be an engineer. And so it sounds like you also have a similar mindset of like, OK, how do I build this? How do I problem solve this? And there's a lot of creativity in that. It's just a different kind of creativity because there's a little bit more of the you know, science and structure that way versus, you know, if you were talking about sculptor, sculpture and and painting, that would be a little bit more, uh, not as structured. Maybe you could be a little bit more organic about that. I love my science. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, 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 you know, I, I love, so, I love figure, I love understanding how everything works together. As far as I, I don't look at the gardening so much as creativity. It's more or less uh, a workout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I like to see creativity sometimes in things that people don't, you know, typically think of as being creative. And I do think that, you know, again, you said you love science. And again, I'm thinking back to the conversation with with Hank and wanting to be an engineer. And again, it might be a different process than, say, what I would think, because I don't, my brain's not set up that way, but it doesn't make it any less creative. It's this kind of, and I think there's a lot of creativity in problem solving and figuring out how things work and how we can get things to work better. Because again, you you are open to different ways of of doing that. So yeah, I, I think, I think that there are a lot of things that are, that we don't, think of as being artistic or creative that actually are. But again, if that's just how you tick and that's just how you are, it's normal for you. You know, it's just your work out in the garden, getting the plants to grow. Yeah. So, yeah. So you don't think of yourself as creative, but yeah, that's a, that's a different way to look at it. Uh, you know, as, as you say, solving problems. I want to know, do you have, you know, a bucket list? Do you have, you know, certain artists that you want to work with or certain venues that you want to play, you know, do you have the, uh, any goals that you want to, to, to pursue? All my life, I've, I've kind of reacted to what comes along. And so I, at this point, I don't have a specific bucket list. I wouldn't mind jumping on a tour that travels. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but but so would, uh, uh, you know, 10,000 other guys and probably a thousand that play my instrument. So, yeah, maybe that'll happen. Maybe not. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of happy where I am. Corroboration wise, I would like to learn more about recording uh, in the digital age. I I did I did some recording uh, as a 
audio engineer in a uh, recording studio years ago when things were all analog and right at the at the dawn of digital uh when uh they were right around the time that they were starting to use the sony uh beta uh video video player the beta video player they were using that for recording music technology because uh music uh that was a uh a, a near digital form um, so that's how ba- that's how far back I was. So I'm uh, kind of out of the loop with that, with all the the advance uh, advancements that have been going on in professional recording. Someday I probably would like to experiment with a home studio, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but it that takes a lot of mastery of of uh, of certain techniques like uh, programming, understanding uh, uh, computers, and then thinking real quick any any good audio engineer is very fast and can get a sound quick quick very quickly without uh too much fuss and so so the question is do i want to rebuild the wheel or where do i want to start with that but i love that also you've kind of lived your life being very open and and open to what's going to come and the different experiences and you know, taking different different jobs so that you can play in these different genres, interact with these different musicians, um, and I think that's helpful for people to hear because I'm not saying that it's bad to have like goals and to visualize things and to write it down. That can be an extremely useful tool, but if you find yourself feeling behind or not feeling successful. Um, because you're not hitting these marks that you wrote down that you defined for yourself. And at the same time, you're missing out because you're so focused on one thing that you're not open to all of these other things that are coming at you. Um, You know, I think that hearing that you are open and that you don't have everything so tightly defined is freeing probably for a lot of people. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I, I, yeah, the fact that I'm open, uh, I, I think, that's been a help to me. One one reason, uh, one way I got that way. I used to do an uh, an original band that was that was modeled after Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. That's is the uh, that's the type of uh, uh, R and B music, R and B rock music. It was, uh, but it was all originals. And one of the uh, the the leader was a baritone sax player named uh, Tom Makovecki, and he's since uh, departed from from this life. But his inspiration to me was: anytime somebody offers you offers to pay you to play your horn, you go, no matter what it is, <laughs> you mm-hmm. do it. Uh, you know, not only be not only just to make the money; it's an honor to be asked. Uh, for, to give your services mm-hmm. so that's uh that that stuck with me i've had different situations come up and i have to tell you in most situations uh i was in over my head <laughs> if you, you you get the feeling that you're like you're in over your head you have no you have no business being here but somehow you figure out a way well, I think that you are just strong enough to say what everybody feels inside, because I think everybody on any given day, you know, feels over their head. And am I doing this right? And what does everybody else know that I don't know? You know, and we're all just doing our our best and, you know, being open. And, you know, when an opportunity comes you know, looking at it, like your mentor had said, like it's something to be grateful for. They want to work with you. Let's be grateful. Let's see what this opportunity brings, because there's not just one right way for success. There's not a one right way for a career or for life. So you just have to, you know, do the best with what's in front of you. And you never know where that's going to lead. I would agree a hundred percent at this point, at this point, uh, so I was uh, talking I, a little bit before about hubris, and, and when when we're young, 
uh, we think we can do everything, right? And I so I got a I got a call from I came off the road with uh Sam and Dave. Uh that finished up and I got a call from uh from a real good friend uh to go to work for uh Charles Erland, who was a um he was a famous jazz organ player, but he at the time he was trying to cross over. Mm-hmm. So I had passed the audition a while back, but there wasn't anything. I was busy and there wasn't anything for me. So I got a call to come out and play the parts. And so I come, I come thinking I'm I'm great. Oh, just came off the road and here I am going to Atlanta to meet him for another gig. And so I I'm come dancing in with my with my uh clothes bag, my horn, my walkman that <laughs> was brand new at the time, <laughs> you know, and and it and it was like, you know, these guys are going, oh, look at this guy. You know, it was like having a target on. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I so I came into and we had to play a place called the Agora Ballroom in Atlanta. It's a very big uh venue. Uh very big indoor venue. The first thing that happened was, and this is how I didn't get fired. First thing that happened was uh, the union representative uh, came and wanted the band's uh, union information. So I just handled my union card because I was probably the only one in the union. Yeah. So I handled the union card. So that was cool. Every, you know, everybody thought I would, it would, you know, Charlie thought that was a great thing to do. <laughs> so. But then Charlie called me out on stage for a solo. Oh no! On a tune that I didn't wasn't expecting to solo it was a tune called "The Animal." Oh gosh! And, and it was he was trying to make it on the R and B charts. It was there a little bit, but so then, then he he goes, "We have an animal right here," and I had, and he introduces me and he says, "Go ahead, play." Play boy, you know. Oh, and here I am. I I had dry mouth. When I'm nervous, I had dry mouth, so I could barely get a note out of the horn. And so I knew it was. I knew it was. <laughs> I knew what it sounded like. Yeah. You know? Oh my gosh. Well, and I mean, and that happens to everybody. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you have some days where you're on. And other days, oh, come on, Corinne. You know that never happened to you. No, no, no. <laughs> but no, but like seriously, I mean, even I mean, how many times have you played something and you're not happy with it, but everybody else is like, "Oh, that's great," and you're like, "Oh, I know, I could have done that better, or I didn't like that, or you know, we all have that uh, most of the time." And uh, uh, playing, you know, people want to know, "Oh, well, you're doing covers all the time," you know. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm playing out. Yeah, I'm doing covers. Uh, 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 a star is going to cover his own material, so he's doing covers too. So what you know? So why is it bad when I do cover material? So, but the way I look at it, uh, a major league baseball pitcher, every time they go out to to pitch, they they're trying to pitch a perfect game. Okay, so I'm ha- I'm trying to have a perfect show, mm-hmm. and. and yeah, you're, you keep realizing there is no such thing, but you got to keep trying. You know, if you you you're keep, even if your show, even if you executed every note flawlessly, if the people around you weren't having a good night, it's not a perfect show, is it? <laughs> you know, it's so, true. So, but that's uh, you know, keep going with that. And the really bad nights, it's like on the first song, oh, perfect, perfect, uh, perfect show is blown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. On a good night, well, you get into maybe the tenth or twelfth song. You know, you get that far. You know, you try to get a little farther every night. But yeah. you know, it's the you know it's like, and I always I always kid with the guys when I have a perfect show, I'm going to retire. <laughs> no, but I really I think that's everybody, and like you know, it was different. Like if I was doing an opera production you know, in in my personal experience, like if it was an opera production, a smaller opera production, maybe you get like three or five shows, you know, of that particular production. And then there's a lot of pressure to like, 
get it great in those three to five shows. And then if you have like a one-off concert, that's a lot of pressure to get it right because you only got one chance, you know? And then when I was doing on suite, when I was doing Phantom, it's like you're doing hundreds of shows. And that actually taught me a lot because you can't be perfect when you're performing eight times a week, week after week after week after week. You know, we're not robots, you know, so you still strove to do the best job that you could but you relaxed a little bit more about it because you were doing it so often, you know, or you tried to um, create challenges. I'm sure you do this too. Like if you, if you have a set list and you're going to be playing all of these shows, it's like, okay, how am I approaching this music today? You know? And if it's not exactly where I want it, well, I get to do it again tomorrow and I get to try it again. And that's how I looked at doing that show as many times as I did. It's like, okay, I liked this. Tomorrow I can try this. All right. That didn't go exactly the way I wanted it, but you know what? I can try again the next day. You don't always get that, that ability, you know, again, when you have a one concert or just a few shows that you're doing. Right. Did you have the freedom to take something down the octave if you had to, or to change the, uh, change any notes or, or would the conductor give you a, a hairy eyeball? No, I mean, personally, no. I mean, I've never been in a situation where I'd be allowed to change something. Um, There was, for one of the parts that I played, there was, if you were having a hard time, there was a lower note that you could could take um, that I had colleagues that would would occasionally choose that. Um, I was fortunate enough that I was always in the place where I could do the music as written and that I didn't have to, you know, take that, that choice. Um, But a lot of times, like if it's, you know, if it's a particular role, um, you either have to sing it as written or you decide on what you're going to do ahead of time in rehearsals. And you make sure that you're picking stuff that you can actually do. And most of the time you're hitting all of the notes and you're able to do things, but maybe something doesn't sound like if you're tired or you're getting off, getting sick is obviously not going to be optimal, but at least it's, it's still there. And I'm sure like musicians, you know, instrumentalists have this as well. It's like, you've got certain days that maybe you're getting off, getting sick and your, your breath support isn't as strong as it would be as if you didn't have that, you know, cough, you know, but it's still good. It's just, you know, you can do it better if you were feeling a little bit better, had more energy. Right, right. And I could tell that you're not the type of person that was going to give it up to anybody to, to, to ask somebody. And I'm not either. I, I just don't, I'm just not cut out that way where I'm going to say, I can't do this today. I'll probably, I'm probably going to try. And, yeah. But, you know. But then you know that you know, for a, for a brass player, you can, you, you if you take it down the octave, you're going to get the hairy eyeball. But as long as it sounds okay, uh, it sounds okay. It's not what exactly what they wanted, but it's not a mistake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to like if you're doing, you know, if you're doing an opera or a show that people are really familiar with, they know how it goes. So you can't really you know, change it up too much because they know what the, what, what it's supposed to, what it's supposed to be. That's also why, like, and it's actually different. I think when you're, when you're touring with a band, it's like, if you're doing a show, like say Phantom, where you're doing eight shows a week for an extended period of time, we have understudies, you know, we have, so if you're really sick, you, you stay home. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a gig, you don't have like a cover trombone person that can come in and sub for, you know? Right, right. So you got to you've got to work it out more. I mean, if I was really sick, I was not on stage because then I couldn't I physically couldn't do it. But but for you, like if you're really sick, what do you do? Well, you know, really sick. You know, you 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 call the boss and tell him uh, tell him tell him the real deal and he'll get us he'll he'll either get a sub or they'll do the gig without you. Yeah. 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 They'll they'll do it with uh, less, but now nowadays he's he'll sub it out if I if that was a uh, a concern. So, yeah. 
But that's also why, you know, performers and musicians, even though we have this crazy schedule, we try to take care of ourselves as much as possible because you don't want to get sick and miss the job and, you know, miss that opportunity. So you try to, you know, keep yourself as healthy as possible. So then when you were saying like how you keep yourself balanced is like, you know, go out and get some exercise, you know, make sure you have some time to yourself, make sure that you rest, you know, all of those important things, because, you know, that, that helps you from getting sick, which is easy to do when you have a hectic schedule and you're running around. The other part of that is, is uh, on the road, I always make sure I have uh, some kind of healthy, uh, healthy food with me that uh, because you, you sometimes when you go, when you get fed on a gig, it's just not happening. It's not good for you or it's just, uh, there's not enough or it's non-existent, you know, so you, you make sure you have a little something healthy, uh, you know, not non-sugary, you know, yeah, you know, fruit and nuts, uh, that kind of thing, you know, just to, to tie you over. Yeah. Keep you going. And, and plenty of water. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So if people want to come and see you perform live, where would they find out about your performances? So the, the Soul Cruisers, they have a website, right? Yeah, Soul, Soul Cruisers have a website. It's soulcruisers.com. Uh, there's a, a link in there for the schedule. You'll see they could probably see us just about any time <laughs> because we work a lot. And, uh, you know, I encourage them to come out. Anybody who watches this, please uh, come over and say hello if you come to the show. And you'll enjoy the show. Definitely. And I will include all of that information in the show notes. Pete, I want to say a big thank you for talking to me today. Um, I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, You're welcome, Corinne. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Create Outside the Box. Please subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. You can listen to Create Outside the Box on Spotify, Buzzsprout, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Check us out on our Creative Operations YouTube channel, where you can subscribe to watch our interviews. You can find and follow Creative Operations on our Facebook page and on Instagram at CO underscore Creative Operations. For more information about Creative Operations, please visit www.creative-operations.org.